0: Hello, and welcome to Research and Justice for All, a podcast series from Health Affairs sponsored by CVS Health. I'm your co-host, Dr. Shree Chagaturu, Chief Medical Officer at CVS Health.
1: And I'm your co-host, Dr. Jonay Khaldun, Chief Health Equity Officer at CVS Health. Welcome to our inaugural episode of our Research and Justice for All podcast. This podcast series is really making sure we are moving forward the conversation when it comes to health equity and what we should be doing as a healthcare
0: system. And I'm really looking forward to sharing our conversation with Dr. Tom Sequist, Chief Medical Officer at Mass General Brigham in Boston. I've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Sequist at Mass General for many, many years, and he has just had an incredible career. In Tom's previous and current roles, he's working to advance health equity and help other leaders understand the importance of it. Health equity is also a focus of his research. We'll discuss what health equity looks like today, the importance of health systems in driving improvements in health equity, and the important work that he's doing in improving health outcomes for American Indians in the Indian Health Service.
1: So let's get into it. Here's our interview with Dr. Tom Sequist.
0: Welcome, Dr. Tom Sequist. Thanks for joining us on the Research and Justice for All podcast. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. The pleasure is all ours, and Janae and I are really looking forward to our conversation. We'll be talking about some of your exciting work at Mass General Brigham and the role hospitals and health systems play in addressing health equity, as well as some of the work that you've been doing in improving health equity uh, for Native populations in this country. But before we get into the discussion, one of the questions that we will be asking every uh, guest on our podcast is, as you think about health equity, why is this work personally important to you? Well, I would say it's important to me for two primary
2: reasons: uh one is personally and the other is professionally I, I know that's pretty generic. Um, But personally, it's because of my own background. So I am American Indian. I am a member of the Taos Pueblo tribe, which is in northern New Mexico. My um, family was raised in the traditional village there in northern New Mexico in the Taos village. Um, And, you know, through that, I I have a a wonderful cultural background and very proud of my heritage. But I would also say that um, I have seen uh, a lot of poverty uh, in that environment, and and the impacts of that poverty, which and poverty and racism, which then leads to um, you know well being, which can be manifest through health outcomes, um, emotional you know sort of um, and and uh, mental health conditions, uh, and and many other downstream consequences. So I just think over the years that has been a a really primary driving force for the work that I do and have been interested in on the professional side. You know, being a a physician, um, which I'm very lucky and, and honored to be able to do, I, the, the thing that has primarily motivated me all the time is, is making sure that we are uh, delivering the best care possible for the whole population that we care for. And we have too often not delivered on that promise uh, uniformly across all the populations that we care for. And so it's just really important to me that we, you know, deliver on that promise and that we're able to achieve that uh, equity and health outcomes for everyone.
0: That's really helpful to hear about your lived experience, personal, as well as your professional experience, and how that drives your passion around health equity. And you now have an incredibly important role as the Chief Medical Officer for Massachusetts General Brigham Health System, or MGB, as we'll call it. And you've led important efforts to improve health equity and quality within your institution. Could you just tell us a little bit about Mass General Brigham Health System, Uh, for our listeners, and then what your role is as Chief Medical Officer?
2: Sure. So Mass General Brigham is an integrated delivery system. It has 12 hospitals. It's a mixture of hospitals. Our flagship academic medical centers are Mass General Hospital, Brigham and Women's Hospital, two large Harvard-affiliated teaching hospitals, quaternary care hospitals, then has uh, three specialty hospitals, a psychiatric hospital, McLean Hospital, a, a rehabilitation network, Spaulding, and then an eye and ear um, facility, Mass Eye and Ear, and then a collection of community hospitals, which are spread across Massachusetts and southern New Hampshire. So we, we care for about a million primary care patients, several million patients a year, all told through our specialty clinics and inpatient facilities. So that's our our general system It's about 7,000 doctors for, as a rough estimate of size.
0: That's really helpful. It's a a very large system uh, driving healthcare in New England and across the nation and globe. Uh, And then as a chief medical officer, what are your responsibilities for the system? How I describe my
2: role is really oversight of strategy, policies, implementation of of programs that relate to quality, and we try to define that broadly. It's all all the tenets of the original Institute of Medicine report, so patient experience and equity and safety uh, effectiveness uh, programs. And then outside of that, additional roles of the chief medical officer here at Master General Brigham include oversight of community health programming, which we think is important to link to our equity work because there is a, a very natural sort of collaboration between health equity work that you do in a hospital and community health work that you do out in the neighborhoods that we serve. And then there are sort of other aspects of the CMO's office that relate to things like formulary and pharmacy choices and medications that we use across the system. Some professionalist, physician professionalism, behavior management, licensing things like credentialing and some other sort of foundational structural elements of quality.
0: Tom, that's an incredibly large remit, but one of the, uh, important pillars of the work that you're doing is around health equity. And it it probably is natural for us to think about the role that health systems have in driving improvements in health equity. Uh, And as we go through our interview series for the Research and Justice for All podcast, you're actually one of the only individuals that we're talking to from a health system. So I think it would be helpful for our listeners to understand what is your vision and what is the importance of health systems like MGB in driving health equity? So it's a really good question because it comes up a lot.
2: And, and it often it used to come up a lot in the context of saying there are reasonable data that health outcomes are 80% related to things that go on outside of a delivery system and maybe only 10 or 20% related to things that go on inside the delivery system. And, and it was sort of like almost this sense of, So what can we do? We're we're just a hospital. And a lot of this relates to poverty and employment and insurance coverage and, you know, decades, centuries even of uh, policies that support systemic racism and other things. Um, There is truth to that statement that those things are so important in driving health outcomes. However, I frame it in two ways. So one is we need to address health equity and health equity concerns that get generated by the way we run, operate, and lead our hospital systems. And so that could be very um, simple, but important things like, how do we manage uh, patient concerns within the hospital? How do we manage um, behavior issues within the hospital? Um, How do we think about our medical policies that may be supporting structural racism within our hospitals and clinics? Uh, And that's totally within our control. So so to be more specific about it, we publish data about this at Brigham and Women's Hospital, that the um, security calls on patients in the emergency department are more likely called on people of color. That is not something that's related to outside external government policies. It's just related to how we internally are running our our hospital and the culture around it. Another example is, you know, clinically, uh, we for years would use race in the calculation or estimation of kidney function. That turns out to have a significant bias against uh, black patients in particular with chronic kidney disease and was impacting their access to renal transplantation. That's a clinical calculator that actually is fully within our control to not use uh, in terms of the use of race. And there are alternatives that are are actually better. It requires us to change our culture and uh, change what we were used to and what we learned in medical school. So that's the first thing is we really should think about what we need to do differently within the walls of the hospital to address health equity. Now, it is definitely true that things like unemployment and housing insecurity and food insecurity are major uh, determinants on long-term health outcomes. That doesn't mean that the hospital should sort of, um, you know, the, the sort of classic barrier, head in the sand. What it really means is that we need to do two things. One, we need to be aware of these things and how they impact patients' lives as we are developing our own care plans, our own care management plans. We would call that the development and implementation of social risk-informed care plans. So if I I use this example and work in tribal communities where access to to indoor plumbing and electricity may be um, not not there in up to a third of of native populations. So if you're prescribing and developing a diabetes care management plan and the patient needs to be on insulin, and you prescribe insulin that is stored in, in glass containers that need to be refrigerated, well, you just need to be aware if they have a refrigerator meaning do they have electricity? Uh, And if they don't, then you need to prescribe a different version of diabetes, you know, glycemic control. That would be what we think of as a social risk-informed care plan. But even on top of that, I think, especially as large integrated delivery systems, we need to do a better job of partnering then with those agencies, with those community voices that actually can address these larger issues of housing insecurity or food insecurity, employment opportunities. And so across Master & brigham One of our main goals is to partner with the state of Massachusetts, with the city of Boston and other cities across Massachusetts to really develop collaborative programs that help drive towards health outcomes. You know, I I love, Dr. Sequist, what you're saying around looking
1: internally at at what you can do within your hospital walls, but also partnering. I want to touch on what you said about screening and being in the patient care setting and screening for social needs, essentially there's often a lot of pushback saying, you know, I can screen for whatever I want in the patient care setting, but if I can't connect that patient to their particular need, whether it's housing, food, et cetera, then I don't want to screen at all. What do you say to people who may push back about this concept of of screening and if they should be screening, if they can't fix the entire kind of social care system?
2: So I take two sort of views on that. The first is that the ideal optimal setting is that you are screening for something because you're going to do something about it, obviously. So if we remove sort of social risk factors from the equation and just said, um, should I screen for hypertension if I'm not going to manage your hypertension if I, if I identify you as having a high blood pressure? The answer is probably no. Why would you be screening for it if you're not going to do anything about it? So that's you know where that argument comes from. But, but I think people also worry that if I screen for something as sensitive as housing insecurity, financial insecurity, um, which people, people may be uncomfortable talking about or be hesitant to talk about. And then I, I, I compound the problem by not doing anything about it. It may come across as a, as a clinical team that I'm even more insensitive to the, to the issues that, that, that the patient is raising. So I get where that sentiment comes from. And so the two schools of thought that I have on this are, one, When we at Mass General Brigham started rolling out universal screening for social determinants of health, we actually did it in a um, circumscribed way, which is we only did it at about 20 to 25 of our primary care practices across the system. And the reason we started there, but we screened everybody, everyone walking in the door and screened them for the full sort of slate of social risk factors. Um, The reason we limited it to that group was we heavily then invested in resources at those clinics to make sure that we could connect patients to the resources that they may need. Um, so that was through digital access navigators, community health workers who could uh, partner with the patient and with our statewide and citywide programs around food insecurity and insurance issues that they may be having and other concerns. That, to me, represents the ideal model where we are not only screening for something, but we have built the resources around it to enable that patient to get the care that they need. However, I would say when I said that I sort of have two schools of thought on this, my other school of thought on this is goes back to that social risk-informed care plans. I may not be able to solve for your housing insecurity, but I actually think as I'm a primary care doctor, I don't think we mentioned that at the beginning, but as a primary care doctor, I actually think it's really important for me to know that you're homeless when I am um, thinking about your care plan. Even if I don't have a structured program uh, to to solve your housing instability, uh, I actually think because... It, will, it may impact some of the clinical decisions that I make, some of the conversations that we have. It's really important for me to be able to talk about that. So I don't think that the lack of completely systematic and structured solutions to some of these social risk factors, I don't think that the lack of those things should actually stop us from merely asking if someone doesn't have enough food by the end of the month. I, I just think that's part of like the human connection we should be able to make with our patients.
0: Tom, that's really helpful to hear about your two schools of thought, screening for awareness, but also a socially informed care plan, which allows us to uh, make sure that our clinical interventions are informed by what we know about social risks. You said that there are a number of social risks that you're screening for in these initial practices. Could you just, for our listeners, uh, lay out what those social risks are that you're screening for?
2: So I think first I would say we actually first start by trying to collect and identify all social demographics. So that's making sure that we know everyone's race, their ethnicity, their language preference, their LGBTQ information. So we are universally screening for that in these practices. Those are not um, so much social risk factors as they are demographics, right, that can impact um, uh, a patient's lived experience. Then we step into the space of social risk factors, and they're what we're screening for primarily. We look for housing insecurity, food insecurity, financial and employment concerns that patients may have. We also do things like domestic violence screening and some other, some other aspects of, of, of social risk.
1: You know, as you talk about the the screening, what I'm also hearing is you're collecting a lot of data and you're collecting data potentially on on disparities. Can you talk a bit about what you're finding as you're screening for those social needs or identifying any any differences or disparities and also how you're engaging your providers uh, if you do, and I'm assuming you do, find those disparities?
2: Yeah, I would say one of the things that, one of the ones that always um, sort of it hits home to me is food insecurity. And this got even worse during the COVID, um, early days of the COVID pandemic. But I think it, it was always there, which is, you know, if you ask simple screening questions, you know, do you run out of food uh, before the end of the month and you're able to buy more food? And to see that some of our patient populations, like one third of them are, are saying yes to that question. I actually often describe it because this is how I feel about this is like, that's a pretty brutal question to have to respond yes to. that that you as a a mother or a father may be running out of food for your family before the end of the month. And so those data represent really stark examples of the inequities that exist in society at large. Obviously, as a hospital system, you are not creating those inequities. And then the question really is, what do we do about that? You're right that the first thing is we have to be able to help our care teams understand what these data mean and then help them understand the programs that we're building uh, around uh, these primary care practices that help um, connect the patients uh, to the to the services that they could benefit from. The conversations with the providers, I think, really do start up front with that notion of saying, what is the role of a hospital system in addressing inequity? Because as you raised, um, and we we're alluding to at the beginning, many times people think, well, you know, so much of these inequities are societal. I- I'm not sure the hospital plays a significant role. And so we spend a lot of time talking to our clinical leaders and our teams, frontline teams about why we think it's so important for our frontline teams to be engaged in this work.
1: Can you touch on that a bit? So I, I was I was looking at your, your website before this interview, of course, doing my homework, and I saw that uh, Mass General Brigham put out a bold statement, United Against Racism. Can you talk a little bit about that? And why did you think it was important for the health system to put that statement out?
2: Sure. So United Against Racism is the name of our strategic platform for equity across Mass General Brigham. And you know, United Against Racism was born from an idea that came about in the late summer of 2020. So, so, and it was very clear, right, that the impact, the disproportionate impact of the COVID pandemic was the result of decades of or centuries of structural racism, right, that led to poverty, inadequate, inadequate access to other resources that helped other populations fend off the COVID pandemic uh, much more effectively. And then early summer 2020, recall, is when George Floyd was murdered, Uh, A lot of uh, uh, sort of awakening awareness amongst the broader U.S. population around these sort of brutal inequities that can exist and that their root is often sort of embedded in in structural racism. And so we felt pretty strongly that as we think about our equity initiatives and our equity strategy moving forward, two things. One, we have to be focused um, because we're not going to be able to solve all of health equity um, initially coming out of the box. So if we're going to focus, then number two is what do we think the most pressing priority is that we have right now? And we felt it was anti-racism, that that's the thing that we need to do address. And so we built our platform around one really key component, which is to say, we're going to acknowledge and be very transparent about what we think is the biggest public health crisis and source of inequity right now, and it's racism. And so we're going to name it. And we're going to drive all of our programs through that lens. We're going to see everything that we do in quality through that lens of equity, but specifically through anti-racism. I love how you said, just, just name it. And, you know, there was a
1: lot of energy in 2020. Uh, many organizations put out statements and put funding forward. How do you keep that momentum when it comes to health equity and, and, and anti-racism efforts uh, as a, a hospital and health system?
0: And I'd love to build on that, Janae. I think that's such an important question because in addition to driving and sustaining, Tom, you mentioned about all the resources that you have in uh, being able to keep these initiatives going. So I was wondering if you could also talk about how did you make that case for funding and initiating this work as well as sustaining and driving it?
2: How I like to describe the early days of 2020, as we entered the COVID pandemic and you saw these shocking uh, inequities in mortality rates between the black and Latino population and the white population in, in Massachusetts, but around the whole country eventually, is that these inequities had been around for decades and centuries. They were reflected in diabetes outcomes. They were reflected in cardiovascular disease outcomes and cancer outcomes. However, the difference was that those outcomes cardiovascular outcomes, cancer outcomes. They took years, if not decades, to develop among any individual patient or the patient population, right? You get diagnosed with diabetes, and it's 10 years before you experience a complication, maybe 20 years before you experience a diabetes-related death. What was different about COVID was that people would contract COVID and die within a week. And so it was almost like a fast-forward runaway train, and people were able to see that whole progression of uh, new disease, contracting the illness, and death all, all, you know, all within a week or two. And then you saw population-level inequities develop over the course of like a month. That, I, I think it was that rapidity and the starkness of the, the outcome being death that really woke up many people to how important these, this issue of racism is and this issue of equity. So then the door was opened much more wider than it had ever been before to developing programs and making investments in this space. And your question is sort of, is this going to be a flash in the pan, or are we able to sustain that momentum? And the thing we focused on at Mass General Brigham, and I think many other hospital systems too, is you have to use that opportunity to build in lasting structural change in the governance of your organization. So we did not use that opportunity to build a one-off um, side program on equity. You can, you can see from the beginning, right, I'm the chief medical officer, so my, my role is not specific to health equity. But what we did was to say, let's look at the structure and the governance of our healthcare system embed the concept that equity and anti-racism are gonna be part of our strategic priorities. It is one of our five strategic priorities for the system. And that then means that myself as the CMO, our chief operating officer, our chief financial officer are all now held accountable to this set of uh, principles that we use that initial door opening to create. I really think that that is the way that we build lasting change is to change the structure and the governance a- around your organization. Um, and then it's not reliant so much on sort of what's the mood of the day or what's capturing the the sort of thoughts and minds of people in the media or, or otherwise. How do we financially sustain this? Our commitment was to to put enough money, uh, enough investment into these programs so that they are no longer small pilot programs, but they are large enough to demonstrate population level impact. And we all know that to demonstrate impact in an area like hypertension management uh, for the uh, black, Latino, non-English speaking population, that that's going to take a lot of money because there's a lot of things that are impacting why the blood pressure control rates are not uh, as good in that population. We made large investments to create sort of proof of concept care models to demonstrate whether we could improve blood pressure control and we did. Over the subsequent 18 to 24 months, we're able to show improvements in blood pressure control for Black, uh, Latino, and and non-English speaking patients. But then the question is, now, how do we fund that moving forward? Well, you know, in our healthcare system, right, that funding has to come from uh, a combination of something related to uh, government payers, commercial payers, and other sources of revenue in the healthcare system. Our advocacy point in this space is to say, we're going to build a care model that actually, for the first time, shows how we can... Uh, reduce and even eliminate inequities. And then we're going to know how much that costs. And then we can have reasonable discussions with CMS, with Medicaid, with commercial payers around how do we fund and create benefits programs that actually allow payers, community health entities, and delivery systems to actually address these programs.
0: And how are those conversations going?
2: I always hoped that things would go faster than they are. I clearly recognize we are a single healthcare system. In a a health system that has nearly 5,000 hospitals, so if you're in Medicare, there's lots of people talking to you about equity right now. Um, I think that we have made significant progress in raising awareness of the work that we're doing and the impact that we're having. I think that, you know, I think we'll see over, honestly, Sri, over the next five years, whether or not we're able to influence the, the discussions around how we pay for healthcare.
1: I think you bring up an important point around just embedding it in how you do your work. It's not a one-off program led by the chief health equity officer, whoever you may, may hire to do this work. It's just embedded in governance. And then you have intentionality when it comes to specific interventions and proof of concept. So I really love that. I'd like us to now transition to a, a different topic, and particularly about your work in American Indian uh, populations. I think this is such an important Area, quite frankly, I think it does not get enough attention. Uh, So let me just start, if if, if I may, just to talk about a few statistics, right? So as of 2022, this is from the CDC, there were 574 uh, federally recognized American Indian or Alaska Native tribes. Um, In 2019, about 52% of American Indians and Alaska Natives had private health insurance, about 42% had Medicaid and 15% no health insurance at all. And as you know very well, Dr. Sequist, there's significant disparities and one that that came to, to light for me where there are Alaska Native and American Indian populations 50% more likely to be diagnosed with heart disease as their white counterparts. Um, and we know this is not genetic, right? I just want to put that out there. This is not about genetic differences. So can you talk a bit about the unique challenges that American Indian populations face when it comes to health? And if you could also talk a little bit about the public health and health services infrastructure in this country for, for
2: our listeners. Sure. So healthcare and and the policies and the payment structures around healthcare for Native American populations in this country is pretty complicated. And it's actually something that I think most folks don't have exposure to for the most simple reason is that uh, Native Americans actually tend to be the most isolated uh, geographically uh, populations in in the country. What I would say is, you know, if you go back to 75 years ago or so, Indian Health Service was created through um, some rulings of the U.S. Supreme Court that that related to actually um, guarantees that the U.S. government had made in treaties. Uh, with with native nations around exchange of land and resources for healthcare, and from that the Indian Health Service was created. And rather than created as um, a funding mechanism like like Medicare, so a, a pure payer program, um, because of the isolated nature of many of these communities, it was set up actually as a full delivery system. So it is a network of fifty hospitals, uh, hundreds of healthcare clinics across the system. These you should think of these as rural hospitals. The Indian Health Service, importantly, is a dramatically underfunded organization. It is funded far less to the dollar than the Medicaid program even. And right now, I think estimates are that it gets about 60% of the dollars that it would otherwise need to care for the size of the Native population that it cares for, which is a little, you know, close to two and a half million patients right now across the country. Native healthcare and the Indian Health Service in particular is a really challenged um, population. I would say, I don't want to put everything in the Indian Health Service bucket because about 50% of people in US Census uh, files who identify as Native don't get their care through the Indian Health Service. So let's say there are about 5 million plus uh, American Indians in the country. I, about half of those, right, are getting their care in the Indian Health Service. That 5 million plus goes up a lot with every US Census that happens. And some of that is, is um, it's a really interesting demographic question, but that population has been going up um, in, in the past 20 to 30 years. So with that sort of general background, all the data and the issues that you uh, cited are really important. I would say that some of the work that we had done over time from the delivery system standpoint suggests that there are really important health outcomes that result from the underfunding of the Indian Health Service, as well as the geographic isolation, access to specialty quaternary care can be really challenging. Even in the ambulatory setting, when you survey physicians across the Indian Health Service, you find that more than 50% of them, um, near 60% of them actually report that they're often um, caring for conditions that they don't feel comfortable with the complexity of. Um, And the reason they're doing that is because there aren't specialists there. And I always, I say that fact and then I back up to people and I repeat it and I say, let's say that a different way. What if the doctor you were seeing in your clinic today, if you knew that the thing they were helping you manage, they didn't feel comfortable with, but there wasn't another choice. How would that make you feel? And you probably wouldn't feel great about that. And that's the position that we put many physicians and patients in, in these rural healthcare systems that are underfunded uh, right now. So, so, you know, we have developed many programs from Mass General Brigham, Brigham and Women's Hospital, McLean Hospital, our psychiatric hospital, as well as Mass General Hospital, to try to bridge some of these gaps. And the main gap that we see is this access to specialty care. So if there were specialists around, we wouldn't have that number that, you know, upwards of 60% of physicians feel like they're managing something that has a complexity that's higher than they're otherwise comfortable with. We did this far before the pandemic, 10 years, 10 plus years ago. We're doing telemedicine care uh, from Boston to the Navajo Nation. Uh, our, where our specialists were delivering remote care, our specialists actually travel out there and stay on in the tribal communities and actually deliver on-site care as well while training the physicians there to become more comfortable. Our operating model is, if you can be trained just a little bit more that act in, in some area of specialty, that actually can greatly expand the number of patients and the number of conditions that you can care for in a comfortable manner, in a high-quality manner. Um, so our physicians go out there and do both training and direct patient care. I think these challenges are are really, really large, but whenever I'm asked what's the main thing we could do to improve the health of the Native population through the Indian Health Service, I think it's so clear to me, it's money. Uh, it's that we can't fund the Indian Health Service at 60% of what it would otherwise need to care for that size patient population.
0: Tom, thank you for sharing your insights about the history of the Indian Health Service and the challenges that it's facing right now one of the big challenges was how the Indian Health Service and the American Indian population handled COVID. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the experience of the pandemic in the American Indian population. And then maybe a final question here is you just talked about the importance of financing the Indian Health Service. And I was wondering if you had any final comments on how Uh, or what actions need to take place to improve the financing of the Indian Health Service.
2: Like populations here in the Boston area, the Black and Latino population experienced the true sort of um, raging fire related to the COVID pandemic in early 2020. A similar thing was happening in Arizona and New Mexico and impacting Native communities there, in particular the Navajo Nation. In Arizona, uh, you saw mortality rates, death rates that were five-fold as high among the native population compared to the white population. I think about that statistic because we never see a statistic like uh, like that, where there's a 500% higher death rate um, for any condition between one population and another. When you look at what was going on there, again, the factors that were impacting uh, Chelsea, Massachusetts, which had a, a large outbreak here in, uh, in Massachusetts related to covid and Shiprock, New Mexico, or any of the communities in, in Arizona, those factors, they may have looked different, meaning the housing is very different, the cultures are very different, but the underlying issue was structural racism. So you saw populations in uh, native populations in uh, Arizona and New Mexico, where they had limited access to water, where they had limited access to food. These are already food deserts, uh, remember? And then you, you have um, healthcare facilities that are very under-resourced and where the providers there um, had very little um, uh, access to personal protective equipment, where the facilities themselves, if they were older, may not have the right ventilation that was necessary to do the proper isolation for COVID. It was just very hard to fight a pandemic in that setting of, of poverty, where again, one third of the people don't have indoor plumbing and don't have electricity. It is really hard to fight a pandemic in those circumstances. I think, luckily, with the infusion of dollars from the federal government um, to help with the COVID pandemic response and sort of recovery, a lot of those dollars were infused into the Indian Health Service to help with things like modernizing infrastructure, to help with recruiting more physicians into these communities. Uh, My hope is that with uh, continued sort of presidential administrations, we can continue close that really substantial gap in funding for what is, you know, essentially about a, I don't quote me on this number, but let's say a five to $6 billion healthcare system, but that's only getting about half of what it needs.
1: Oh, I certainly hope so as well. Thank you so much, Tom, for just your insights in this great conversation, talking about healthcare systems and embedding health equity into just your general infrastructure, but also bringing forth important points about how we need to really must support the American Indian population. So thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate you being on with us today. Thank you. What a great discussion. Tom really gave us a lot to think about. You know, a lot of health systems are thinking about health equity, but I think many of them are still trying to figure out exactly what to do. And it sounds like he's got a pretty strong strategy. He also gave us a clear example of what tangible actions look like. And also, I'd say I was so inspired by the work he's doing in the American Indian population. This is so personal for him, of course. And he really talked about the challenges that tribal populations face, the issues with funding and the issues with access that I think are really, really important.
0: Couldn't agree more. And, you know, we started with a pretty hard question, like, why should a health system be invested in health equity? And he had a very clear answer that, yes, there is a lot that's outside the realm of a health system, but that doesn't mean that we can't play a role in doing what we can with the resources and levers that we have. And then he talked a lot about, you know, exactly how do you drive this? How do you initiate and fund the work, but also drive and sustain? And I think his point that when we launch these initiatives, it's important that it's not a one-off named project but it's about building lasting structural changes into the organization and the operating model of an organization.
1: That's right. You know, it's it's not just about one person or, or one person's initiative. It really has to be embedded into how an organization really does its work. And, and I'd say I'm, I'm proud of the way we're addressing our health equity work at CVS Health in a similar fashion. Well, that is our show for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the Research and Justice for All podcast sponsored by CVS Health. I'm Dr. Jonay Keldum,
0: And I'm Dr. Sri Chagaturu.
1: Please share this podcast with anyone you know who is working to advance health equity. And please don't forget to subscribe to the Research and Justice for All podcast if you have not already. Thank you for listening. And see you next time. Take
0: care, everyone.
1: Research and Justice for All is produced by Health Affairs. This season is sponsored by CVS Health. If you enjoyed this episode, the best thing you could do is share it with a friend or a colleague. It helps people find the show. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out Health Affairs' other podcasts, The Health Policy and Health Affairs This Week.
0: Health Affairs, where health policy advances.